Welcome back to the Career Therapy Podcast, where we explore the intersection of work and well-being. I am your host, Coach Marty, and each episode, I interview mental health experts, coaches, and industry insiders to bring you practical insights and tips that will help you find and build a meaningful, rewarding, and sustainable career. So join me as we explore the path to career satisfaction, one conversation at a time. In today's episode, we sit down with Dr. Orlando Wright, a behavioral scientist who enjoys innovation within the behavioral health space. He is the principal of Halcyon Clinical, an institute for clinical research, treatment, and training, and works as the director of partnerships and innovation at the American Society of Addiction Medicine. In this episode, we talk about the art of sustainable self-care, emphasis on the word sustainable. We talk about why you should throw out your vision board, and what you should do instead. And we talk about acceptance, creativity, and how self-talk can lead to radical life changes that you can't even predict are gonna happen. If you like this episode of the Career Therapy Podcast, please leave us a review on Spotify and iTunes, share it with a friend, or leave us a comment on YouTube so we can help people navigate their way to a better career. That's all for the intro. Now let's dive into this week's conversation with Dr. Orlando Wright. Dr. Wright, thank you for joining us today. I'm so excited to chat with you about self-care, finding your tribe and empathy in the workplace. Uh, before we get into it, of course, I'd love for you to give us a little bit of your background and the work that you're doing today. Sure. Well, good to be here. Thank you, Martin, for giving me the opportunity to talk a bit about uh, something that's really of interest. Uh, most of my work has been in the clinical arena, uh, also managing uh, folks within the space, both in community-based organization and also at the state level. And then now I'm in the greater Washington, D.C. area. So it's been an interesting transition. I came originally from Connecticut and then landed in this area. And now I'm with the American Society of Addiction Medicine. That work, I'm the director of partnerships over there. And, and most of my work entails working with payers who license the criteria uh, and also with uh, states who are looking to utilize uh, the treatment system structure that ASAM has provided uh, for the states and others to utilize. So that's a bit about my my work. And then I also have a practice called Halcyon Clinical and do quite a number of things um, in this space in terms of direct clinical work. I don't get to do as much clinical work in my day-to-day -day job, but um, in my practice, I do uh, see clients quite often. So I'm a licensed social worker and I have a PhD in uh, human behavior. That's wonderful. And so as we get into our conversation today, um, there's a lot of talk about self-care out in the media and online. And some of it's great. Some of it's a little out there. I'm curious, when when you think about self-care, what are the most, what are maybe some of the um, misconceptions people have about self-care as they start trying to practice it and incorporate it into their lives? One key, one key piece that I see that happens, it's often framed as if it's something you have to stop and do. <laughs> it's like, 
self-care, I stop, I do that, and nothing else happens, right? And that's <laughs> often how it's framed. <laughs> the second part that I think uh, folks have a misunderstanding about is that it's not something happening to you. Rather, it's an intentional process. And I'll, and I'll expand on the first. <laughs> the, the first part about it's not something that you have to stop and, and do. Rather, I think it's an intentional process, right? So as I am moving through my daily practices of life, taking care of myself is something that I do because it's the thing that has to be done in order to function properly. So one of the things I, it's it's non-traditional in a way, but um, I often recommend folk go to a chiropractor. You'd be surprised, right? So I go and I massage. That's typical, people talk about a massage, but I go to my chiropractor uh, for self-care purposes because it's a thing that I have integrated. The other piece is I like to sit and shoot the breeze. And I do that at least once or twice a week. And I talk about nothing that I have to do with my job. As a matter of fact, I would prefer it. <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, that process for me, it's, it's really integrated. And it's not something that I have to go, hmm, I should take some a vacation for self-care. I think self-care is integrated in how you live your life. Yeah, it is an interesting thing because, um, you know, a lot of times where people push back on self-care is they say, I don't have time for self-care, right? Or I want to do self-care, but there's just no, there's no room in the day to get it done. And, and kind of what you're talking about here to put it incredibly crudely is like, make it as as regular as you know use the toilet in the morning in a way right <laughs> like right. yeah it's like how do we just make this how do we make this just the thing that we have to do to get to the next thing mm -hmm. and almost get it to a point where it's unthinking and and i think one of the other things that people struggle with is they try to start exploring or incorporating self-care is that they feel like they have to be a different person in order to do these things like I want my self-care to look like this person on the internet or that person on the internet or what I imagine self-care to be versus thinking about what comes naturally and what we are already doing for self-care. I think a lot of people also don't give themselves credit for the things that they have been doing, or they almost think negatively about the self-care practices that they've already been doing. So maybe someone, you know, veges out in front of the TV at the end of the day because that's their only current self-care but then they beat themselves up for it what have you seen right. with that kind of odd dichotomy between wanting to do self-care and wanting to do it the way maybe the media or the internet tells you to do it well there there is some value right i think from pop culture and folks might beat me up for saying that but there is right there are sometimes we share information that could be potentially valuable for us but it can't be the only way that we facilitate knowledge, right? And one of the ways that I think we can frame this that makes it practical and really the, the idea here is that it has to be sustainable, right? Meaning I can do it for longer periods of time. 
And so if someone latches on to something that they see in the pop culture or social media and it works for them and it revives them, which I think is a key piece of good self-care, is that it actually helps the person to come back, reset, and feel different about the task at hand or situations that they might be facing. The practice itself has to be sustained and it cannot be just a one time or a couple times type of thing. So whatever it is that you're going to do, if you see it in pop culture, then certainly if it works for you, then do it. I often, it's it, burnout is the other side of self-care that is not intentional, that is forced, that is not individualized to your needs. And the fact that the matter is sometimes folks can feel really stretched doing things that are not sustainable and they have not thought about how it fits into their life. There's sort of this dance, right? What fits for me? What are some of the positive and, and good things that I see and how I can make that work for a longer period of time? And when it comes to that sustainability piece, um, where what are let's let's get into some examples because i i think a lot of people have a lot of different things in their mind when they hear the phrase self-care they might think of a bubble bath they might think of a glass of wine they might think of a hike they might think of a vacation it, it go, the list goes on and on um when you're talking about this dance of finding what's right for you and making it sustainable um what are some of the examples of the unsustainable practices just commonly, I mean, obviously there's someone out there that can do anything, right? Uh, for any example we give, someone would be like, I do that every single day. It's like, right, okay. Yeah. But but in general, what do you tend to see as the practices that people try to incorporate that lead to the most burnout? And what are the things that they incorporate that lead to the most sustainability? Well, I'll, I'll start with the burnout first, and particularly when I see clients I caution them about the Big Bang. The burst of energy to do something is often just that. It's a burst of energy. I, I, I stay away from this motivation type of perspective. I'm motivated to do it, so I'm going to do it. Rather, I have folks think about tidbits of nudges that they can facilitate in their process day in, day out, and accomplish those small tidbits because you want to have some level of success. Often what happens is the inverted thing happens when you have the Big Bang. You get motivated, you get started, and then the energy sort of withers away, typically within a couple weeks. And what happens is even if it's unstated, folks have this thing that happens where the guilt settles in about not having sustained that thing, and then they don't get back. Well, the best practices I've seen in terms of the other side, being able to sustain it, is taking small bits of whatever that thing is. And I'll use, let's say walking, for example. I, I particularly like to go walking because I get to clear my brain. It's a integrated activity for me. And so I'm not focused on doing, uh, you know, 10 miles or running fast. I'm really just focusing on just walking to see how far I can go. 
And then I'm also focused on, can I do this a couple times per week? Or for some folks, it might be day one, I start out and I get going. And what starts to build over time, instead of having this big goal of where you want to go, just get started. Because one of my favorite authors, Bossidy, talks about how one of the singular, and he uh, he wrote a book called Execution. I think I think the something about the, the way to get things done. But the fact is, is that execution is the singular piece that helps us to start a process, right? Getting it going, not necessarily figuring out what it's going to look like. And that's my piece about how you can sustain a positive self-care routine for longer periods of time. That's a really interesting idea because when it comes to what people see on the media or online or whatever it might be, it's always goal-oriented because people are trying to sell you things, right? It's get the job, get the promotion, get more money, get in shape, get a six-pack, get whatever the thing might be, right? Because we live in a culture that needs outcomes or people think it's not worth it. So how might someone let go of the outcome-oriented thinking in order to do these things? Because I do find that to be incredibly difficult for people without that vision they sometimes lose all the motivation to do anything. And then they can end up uh, falling into the trap of, it's like the self-care is that like perfect little middle, like Goldilocks point, right? You've got (laughs) doing too much, you hit burnout. Doing too little, you're, you know, a lazy POS, right? And then there's (laughs) that little like sweet spot in the middle, that Goldilocks spot that we're trying to hit. Um, So how do you help people, um, not fall into the pit of despair, let's say, because they don't have an ambition or a goal or something to keep them motivated. Or maybe we can even just dig into motivation. Like what is, what are the different types of motivation and how do they play into this self-care practice? I, I actually, I think motivation is a important part of it, but I focus on something a little bit different, Martin. And I focus on uh, what it looks like to deal with difficult or challenging situations. Because really, if we look at motivation, motivation never is consistently sustainable. And as a result, what we find is, is that folk think that they should be always motivated or more motivated than they currently are. And I say toss that idea out. I recommend that if you have a particular outcome in mind, that's all well and good. But often I demonstrate to folks that when they have a outcome, the setting of that particular goal or the setting of that particular outcome should be the least amount of time they uh, facilitate this process, should be the least amount of time they use to facilitate their process. Rather, I encourage folks to think about How do you deal with when things are not going well? And as a result of things not going well, what does your grit looks like? Because if you have the ability to 
emotionally regulate in the midst of things feeling really nasty or not good, then if you don't have it, then that's what we ought to focus on helping you to develop. And if you do have it, then that grit, inevitably, if you put one foot before the other, the idea is, is that you're going to hit some things along the way, and we want to prepare you for that. Rather than this process of there's a goal, and there's some folks who are built like that, Mark. Don't get me wrong. You know, those are the superhumans, but I'm not <laughs> like that. Rather, what I do is I have a process of stick with it. And working out is a, is a great example. I tell folks often, if you go, I want to use workout as my process, and you go, I want a certain body, I go get, a, get rid of this idea of having a certain body. Rather, focus on this idea of the days that you're not going to want to get up. Because if we get you up more times than not, the net result looks closer to your goal. This idea of getting rid of the idea of, of the perfect body and of the goal, there is so much resistance that I see with people around this, especially when it comes to career development, right? Because right. having that title, having that income, having that prestige of whatever it might be, um, you know, you talk to someone who's doing the job search and they don't they don't want to do the job search. They don't want to do any of this. They don't want to create the resume. They don't want to create a cover letter. They don't want to go network. They don't want to interview. They don't want to negotiate. They don't want to do any of it. They just want to have a job that lets them live, right? And one of the things that ends up happening there is that they don't enjoy any parts of the process. And obviously the process is the point, is is a big piece of, of what we're talking about here. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of cliches online saying like, you got to learn to love the process. You got to enjoy the pain. You got to, uh, you know, all the different things that, that we're talking about here. But this idea of grit, this process of sticking with it, and this focusing on the days that you don't want to be doing the thing. In the job search, every day is a day that you don't want to be doing this thing. So <laughs> it's not even like... Uh, self-care in terms of working out where some days the workout really does feel good. Uh, a lot of times the job search just never even feels that great. Uh, so when it comes to these ideas of embracing pain or embracing the challenge or focusing on the process, not the destination, um, what can people do to change their thinking around not even wanting to do the thing in the first place. Maybe that burst of energy is the only thing that gets them to fill out an application. Um, or maybe the fear of like rejection is the only thing, you know, we see a lot of anxiety and, and things in the job search. And very often people want to get rid of the anxiety and we have to be like, well, wait a second, that might be your only source of energy and motivation right now uh, is the anxiety of paying rent. So I, I mean, there's so much in that, in what I'm bringing up here, but I'm curious when you, when you think about these things, um, obviously motivation is fleeting. We need to come up with a process and stick with it. We need to develop our grit. Um, what, maybe we can go deeper into that idea of grit. What exactly is it and how do we develop that instead of all of these other maybe superfluous things that we're talking about? Mm -hmm. 
It, it, it is, that's a wonderful question. And I think the depth of it is important and worthwhile exploring. Grit sits in a place of knowing that you don't entirely have all the answers. And that knowing is really important. And sometimes that knowing comes with a little bit more experience. Sometimes it comes with relying on your resources. Sometimes it comes with having good mentors or folks you can trust and rely upon. They can help to build that knowing. But often when you see folks who have grit, meaning stick with a situation, it's not that they just stick with it because they don't know how to assess if things, they need to turn a corner. It's precisely that they know when to press on the, the gas pedal or when to pump the brakes. That process of knowing has to be developed. And often folks who have a lot of processes in place for their own strength or their own uh, self-esteem, it can go further. But before you can develop grit, you really have to believe, well, let me back up. You have to know that the process you're embarking on comes with a lot of unknown things that you cannot control. That's the first part of it. That's the depth, right? That's the there's a lot of this I can't control, but this is worthwhile to me. So being able to identify that this is a worthwhile endeavor to you. So for example, I got to pay the rent. It's worthwhile, right? I got to get things done. Fact of the matter, that identification of what's wor worthwhile is going to help you to stick with it. And if you look up the definition of perseverance, which is really what we're talking about, it's a much more valuable skill than motivation because perseverance is really about being able to stick with something in the face of difficulty or challenge. And so when you operationalize this, the knowing isn't about what the outcome will be. The knowing is this is a worthwhile endeavor for me. And if I can stick with this, I don't know what the outcome is going to look like, but I squarely go back to the focus on what is at hand. So I got to get a job. I hate looking up, <laughs> looking for different places to work, but it's worthwhile to me because there's a larger goal. I still want to go have my $2 or $2.50 coffee every week. And so that's important to me. You connect it to what's important to you, and then you start to put it into operation. It really does seem to me that goals can almost act as sedatives in a lot of ways. Um, and, and what you're talking about, I think, is really important because Goals are so far away and they make you feel good in the moment. And because of that, we then can relax a little bit because we already know what we're working towards. So we're already basically there in our minds. 
and it can have a counter effect in a lot of cases. Granted, as you said, there's always the outliers who they set a goal and they don't stop until they get there. Um, and we've had a lot of conversations on this podcast about like, a lot of that is a trauma response. <laughs> like a lot of people's success is their inability to sit still. And they're, maybe it's even healthy to not be that ambitious in some ways, shapes or forms. But um, a lot of times these goals can be sedatives. And I like what you're saying about this piece on knowing and knowing that um, you're there's so much out of your control. You don't know where this is going to go. Even if you have an idea of what it might look like, the chances of it looking like that are very few and far between. Um, what are your thoughts on the idea of goals as sedatives uh, for people and, you know, almost using goals as a way to um, almost as like a fight, flight or freeze response in a lot of ways. It's an avoidance tactic. Uh, to dealing with what you're talking about here, which is instead of thinking about the future, think about right now, I want this coffee, I need the $3. So I have to go to work in order to pay for the, like making it so immediate, making it more present. Um, how can we develop that skill when so much of our life has been thinking about what we haven't done in the past and what we're wishing we were doing in the future and not being in that moment, that present moment. Right, right. It so I almost never set more than one or two things that I would like to accomplish in any given year. And the idea behind that is, quite frankly, even adults who have fairly well-functioning lives struggle with maintaining four or five different goals for the year, right? And you're right, we do sometimes forget them. But in order to be laser focused, I I get rid of this idea. I know folks have vision boards and it's a pop culture thing. I'm gonna tell you right now, I don't ever advise anyone to do a vision board. And the simple reason for that is because when we talk about a vision, it's a powerful thing but it tends to not have actionable items in that vision. And so I don't have, I have only anecdotal information on this, but I suspect that you do a vision board and if you don't have measurable actions that you can take towards that particular goal or larger thing for your life, what starts to happen is you start to see over time the realities of non-achievement starts to set in and that is counterproductive. However, so, so that's to your question, right? About <laughs> how this thing actually works. What I ask folks to do is I ask them to come up with action items. And those action items have to be time sensitive, they have to be achievable, and they have to be something that when you look at it objectively, it's not about your feelings regarding whether or not you like something or not, but rather whether or not you achieve those things that you said you were gonna do within two months. And that forces the individual, because. 
if you get a sense of what I'm talking about here, Martin, is I'm saying that you don't eliminate any large long-term goals per se, but the focus isn't squarely on those goals. The focus is squarely on achievable things within the moment or within the, the near future. And that gives you the opportunity to work a plan that has real ramifications for you to look back and say, am I really doing what I set out to do? Because mm -hmm. if you aren't, then you ought, you ought to reassess and, and consider whether or not you're actually meeting the thing that you set out to do and whether or not you should change it. And that's a good way to change your mind about something that you wanted to do or you wanted to integrate in your life that you're no longer doing. You mentioned earlier about um, setting these ideas, rooting these perspectives in in the in in our worst days, in the days that we don't want to do something, right? And I think that that's a really difficult thing because whenever we are in that burst of energy, burst of motivation, oh my gosh, you know, I'm going to self care to the nth degree today, and I'm going to sign it. I mean, I just did this this week. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> I had this one day that I was incredibly frustrated, and that gave me a lot of energy, right? Because I was like, oh, I'm so frustrated about everything, and so then I went to and I went to the gym, and I was like, I haven't been to the gym and forever i'm gonna lift some weights i'm oh man i've been doing this so long it feels so good and then i was like now i'm gonna go sign up for a yoga class and then i'm gonna go sign up for the monthly and i'm gonna you know bring myself to that i i've already registered for three classes in the next three days and i'm sure i'll burn out in the next month uh and this is just the cycle when you don't have a sustainable approach to something um but when we are going through those uh moments and we're you know, maybe not thinking about this stuff in, in quite the most sustainable way. And then we crash at the end of it, let's say. So I'm, I'm, I'm asking a personal question here. When I crash at the end of this, uh, <laughs> um, when we're looking at the day that we wake up, right? We did all this stuff when we were motivated and we set all these goals. And then we tried to put together some sort of a plan around it. And then we wake up on a Thursday and boy, we just didn't get good sleep. We haven't been eating well. Something's off. We don't want to go to the gym. We don't want to do the thing. When we are planning for those worst day scenarios and we're trying to root our grit and our sustainable vision in those um, worst day scenarios, what does that actually look like? Do you have any examples of people that you've worked with or things that you've seen that... Um, might be a little bit shocking to people to hear of like how small it might be or like what they might need to adjust their sure. thinking around? That, that is an excellent question. And often, Martin, I don't want to shock you too much, is so I do a thing. It's, it's, it's often we see it, folks call it procrastination. And I do this fun thing with procrastination. I ask the person typically, I go, sounds like a really fancy, culturally supported word for avoidance. <laughs> and 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 I go, there's nothing wrong with the word. However, have you thought about integrating procrastination in your process? Hmm. Where it becomes a strategy rather than something you do because you're feeling burnt? And then they go, hmm, what do you mean by that? And I go, think about this. And this is the most recent case I could come up with. I was talking with someone about 
a particularly stressful project. And they had motivation some days and other days they didn't. And we were talking about this whole process of grit. Go, well, strategically, I know I have to get it done. But I, I'm usually doing it last minute and I don't feel my best self. And I go, well, chunk it out, block time out, right? Where you go, how far ahead do I have to get this project done? And you take and you go, well, I'm going to integrate in, uh, my procrastination in this process because it gives me time to revive myself and come back to it. Remember, if you procrastinate and you never come back to it, then perseverance isn't being operationalized. But if you do take time and you come back to it, often I have to write a, quite a bit of stuff. And one of the things I'll tell you is, if you write something and you take time away from it and you come back to it, and it becomes, if you say, okay, I got to get the deadline is three months from now. Let me get started now so I could build in time of procrastination strategically. Then I can come back to it and I have a better product further along. And that becomes a part of the strategy because I know I'm going to get, I'm going to be avoidant. And because we're not perfect, and I do the same thing. I do it with workout. And instead of beating myself up that I went for a whole month <laughs> without, you know, actually doing one workout and came up with all excuses, what I go, all right, I saw that. I took a month of procrastination. It's time to get back on it. So now look at it through the lens of six months. Six months, I'll be much more consistent if I've developed the skill set over a longer period of time rather than just going, yeah, I'm not going to do that anymore because the guilt and shame that comes along with something I started. So I use that, that technique of having folks process and think about how to integrate procrastination as a strategy, which I don't think anybody has ever referred to it as such. But if you talk to folks about how they their process comes together, I bet they'll tell you that they take time away from something intentionally. Well, that's what we're doing when we go, I'm, I'm, I don't, I'm not as motivated. <laughs> I really love that. And <laughs> I'm already, I'm already feeling the, the pushback on it of, well, I'm going to procrastinate, procrastinate. <laughs> it's just like, um, but it's, it's so fun what you're talking about because, you know, I mean, we're in March now, so pretty much everyone's new year's uh, resolutions are are dead in the water. And uh, I know when I sat down, I was hanging out with friends around New Year's and everyone was setting uh, their goals. And I was setting goals that I felt like, yeah, these are things that I'll actually accomplish this year. And uh, <laughs> I got called out and everyone's like, your goals are too small. You're not doing enough. You're not setting, you're not taking this seriously. And I was like, um, I just know I'm not going to achieve these things. <laughs> like, I'm just very aware that every time I set big goals, I don't achieve them. And then I go into that guilt shame spiral. Um, and it's funny because I uh, then, you know, I, I kind of consent, you know, uh, 
went along with it and sent, set some bigger goals. And I was like, you know what, I'll let's set a goal to do yoga every day. Right. And for all of January, I did great. And I was even trying to be non-judgmental with it. I was like, you know, you miss a day here or there, as long as the, the majority of the month you're doing it. But then February, boy, plummet just fell off a cliff didn't do anything and and then I started doing other things like going for walks and stuff but I wasn't counting it because I was like that's not the thing I said I was going to do and of course the shame and the guilt and everything started bleeding in and um and I do find that to be so funny the beating ourselves up right um and then we by the way it really is precisely how it happens and then the next thought I had was Literally, I had a little calendar. I was filling in the squares of the days that I did and the days I didn't with yellow and green. And there's so much yellow for the days I didn't that I, the other day, literally, this is like three days ago, I just ripped the thing off my fridge and was like, screw this shit. <laughs> I threw it out. And I, I noticed, I was like, well, I'm about to give up on this entire goal for the entire year, which is what motivated me to then sign up for classes because I was like, maybe if there's a deadline and some money behind this, I'll I'll have, you know, at least some other external incentives that that keep me on track. And who knows, that probably will die off in a few months and I'll have to do something else. Right. But these are the interesting things that I think happen, especially when we start to feel guilt and shame, when we start beating ourselves up. And then, you know, we we maybe throw the thing out. But then a year later, it just pops back up. Like one of the things that I've been learning to do over the years is to trust that I can't be lazy forever to trust that I can't veg out forever. So when I'm in those moments where I'm watching, maybe I'm binge watching a TV show. I know in the back of my head, this will eventually get boring and I'm going to be motivated to work out again. I just need to trust that I will, I have an internal system that will keep me somewhat on track. And and then I need to lean into whatever that natural system is for me, which is, I think, what you're getting at in a lot of different ways and acceptance, I think is a big piece of this. And I'm curious what your thoughts are on acceptance. Yeah. Because I read an article the other day about um, this one person said it wasn't until I embraced my chaotic lifestyle that I could finally live with my ADHD instead of fighting it every day. And I'm curious what your thoughts are. Isn't that interesting how that works? By the way, I'm happy that you, you brought that up. It, what what I often see, so in dialectical behavioral therapy, uh, Marsha's work, we saw this piece where she talked about acceptance and radical acceptance in particular. So if folks are interested in developing that skill for themselves, um, they could certainly look up DBT radical acceptance. But nonetheless, the reason why I love it, Martin, is because there's a statement that's in Marsha's work that talks about why would you stop in hell? Like, like you got to keep going, right? And I go, huh, because, you know, prior to that, if you look at CBT and all the other stuff, what we forget is that people are having these real emotional responses to situations that they may not have yet put a name to or understand completely, right? And so that acceptance process is actually what's needed, even in a person with a person who's experiencing significant impact to their functioning uh, and they need clinical uh, assistance. 
the fact of the matter is even the, the person who is working and struggling with some of these same things, once they start to really tune into what is it that I ultimately would like to see and can I facilitate any change in the things that I want to see, their locus of control shift. And that becomes, because what happens is it's really about, if you think about it, Martin, it's really about those areas that we feel, because when we say, when we say, I don't have any control over this, we don't ever do the opposite, which is what do I, if once I've accepted this, what do I have some locus of control over? And often what we're trying to do is develop mastery in that particular area, because the way that that mastery works is it helps us to facilitate healthier uh, thought processes or self-talk around some of this stuff, and also the actions that we take around some of these challenges that we're having. But that acceptance is such a key piece of it. And it's, I, I would like to say it's fine-tuned acceptance. It's not one of this apathy type of stuff where I just go, yeah, I accept everything. No, it's intentional. It is uh, facilitated through real understanding and comprehension. It is something that you see, this word strategy, Martin, is what makes the difference, right? It's really about, I see the value in accepting this because I can then focus on the things that I am willing to do or the things that I, I can operationalize for myself in this moment. Sometimes it starts as a thought process and then it may move to those some those actionable items that we talked about earlier. Yeah, and it is, it, so it's strategies instead of goals. Would you say that that's right? 100%. Because strategies so, really are things that we can do now. And it holds us in a space of if we build on this, then we can sustain it beyond just the situation. It's transferable to other situations in our lives. Today's episode of the podcast is brought to you by Career Therapy's Unstuck Coaching Program, which was built to give you the personalized support you need to advance in your career without fear and turn work-related anxiety into professional accomplishments. When you enroll in the Unstuck Coaching Program's monthly membership, you get immediate access to all of the coaching resources you need to crush it in your job search. This includes two one-on-one -on -one calls with Coach Marty every month, weekly job search support group sessions with the Unstuck community, access to the Unstuck curriculum, which guides you through every aspect of your job search from strategy through negotiations, and an invite to the Career Therapy Slack channel where you can chat with Coach Marty whenever job search questions come up. Want to see if the Unstuck Coaching Program is right for you? Head over to careertherapy.com and schedule a free consultation with me in order to find out. And so circling this all back to the self-care piece, um, to build strategies around self-care that take into account procrastination, acceptance, and all the different things that we're talking about, um, maybe we can help give people some starting points for uh, where they can look for the self-care they're already doing 
and maybe just be more mindful of it. And then things that are easier to incorporate so that they don't burn out. Do you have maybe some examples? I've got a list here. We could maybe go through a few together. Um, what I would do you love think? to go through a few with you, but I do have some examples as well. What do you have? Jump on in. Well, I've just got a, a long list that ChatGPT gave me of things that I agree with and disagree with. Uh, but Chat GPT. I know, right? You gotta gotta leverage the new Google. And so, um, but you know, you talked to me in our in our earlier conversations about some different things that you like to do, including creative writing and poetry and and things like that. So I'd, I'd love to just start there and then I can bring in some other concepts as we go. Um, what are the things that you think from a creative standpoint, why do you think that that's so helpful for self-care? The So Martin, I, I get excited talking about this because when I was about 16 through like early 20s, I wrote a lot of poems. And I do have a project that's coming out. It's a self-reflective project of creative writing that has somehow lost its muster in pop culture. But we do know the number of studies support the fact that creative writing helps folks to develop their expression and develop better self-care activities. One of the interesting things of why about why I like creative writing is now in my 40s, I get to take a look back at the poetry that I wrote then. And it's really neat to see what my, and I had them dated too, that's funny. <laughs> so I get to look back and I go, sometimes I get really curious and I, and I Google what day, like if it was a Thursday or Friday. And, and it's interesting the topics and things I was talking about and, and reflecting on those things. That's why I love creative writing so much. And one of the things that men don't do as much of is they don't do a lot of creative writing anymore. Um, it is something that I support, whether or not that's just writing your thoughts down, whether or not that's through poetry. Um, if folks are hip hop artists or poets, I often go, that's another way to do it. Uh, but that's a practical self-care tool and technique. And it bears itself out in the data in terms of when we look at, is this really valuable? And often we see that men can utilize this in getting their thoughts out, making sure they're clear on where they are, making sure they can start to bridge the gap between their emotions and their thoughts, because they're both valuable um, pieces of information to help us facilitate through life. Here's another one I was gonna do in terms of a starting process. Uh, self-talk. So it, let me just put it out there. Nothing is wrong with you if you are having self-talk in your house, right? We do get it. Some folks are disinhibited and it might happen for other folks who experience other mental health uh, or have other mental health diagnoses. But the self-talk, how we talk to ourselves is something that we can develop as a really solid tool for how we're gonna to come to others with information or things that are on our mind. And so it's a valuable skill that you can utilize now. And it's a important skill. P 
people look down upon it because they go, I don't want to be talking to myself, but you do it all the time. Wink, wink. You don't have to tell me. <laughs> but I know people do it all the time. And here's how it, it's facilitated currently. Sometimes it's silent. You know, people are in their heads thinking about things. I think self-talk, once again, to this intentional word, is you had an experience or something that's going it's on your mind, and you're trying to process through it. And so you're sitting in your house or somewhere private, right? <laughs> because you don't want to necessarily have self-talk on the park bench. Um, but you sit in your house, you're processing through it, and you just want to hear yourself talk about something that may be bothering you before you get it to the other person that you actually want to problem solve. And it helps you to develop more clarity, helps you to be um, mindful of how you sound. Think about it. Folks do not often get to hear their own voice. And if you well, say it out loud, it becomes a really important tool to utilize in your own self-care. Yeah. And a big piece of it is if you actually heard the things that you were saying to yourself in your head out loud, God damn, that has got to be... It is going to be a totally different thing to hear it, it and to say it than to mark. just That's think right. it. <laughs> like, because, um, because what happens is we, we keep all different types of things in our heads and it's silent. And then if you put it out and then you go, huh, that didn't make any sense. Oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> and it's or, true. Man, uh, I, was, I was much more hurt about that than I thought I was. It could yeah. also so bring out a lot of emotions too. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. So there's I, so I, much I right, think, be right beneath the surface. Go ahead. Absolutely. I think people do it. I think doing it intentionally, strategically as a way that you may get to a, a place of clarity is really important. And you can facilitate that tomorrow or a day from now or an hour from now uh, for yourself. If you are not necessarily a writer. Yeah, and I all of the things that you're talking about here, I think are really helpful for me personally, and I hope that they're helpful for other people. Um, you know, when I was in therapy over the summer, and I still am just I'm doing somatic now instead of CBT. But um, when I was doing that, there was this period because I was, you know, living alone. And, and I, I just started talking out loud to myself naturally. And I was like, this feels crazy. I feel insane. And then I like went to the mirror and I started like talking to myself in the mirror. And I did that for maybe a week or two. And then I, it kind of fell into the background. And just recently it happened again. I was just like staring in the mirror. I'm like, oh shit, I haven't like looked at you in a while. How's it going, man? <laughs> like, just like really weird stuff. And, Think and I also- the self-esteem that you're developing. Well, and the things that I said to myself were very encouraging versus what I think in my head, because I would never say those things out loud to myself. And and I also like your idea of poetry. Um, you know, I bought a typewriter at a flea market years ago, and it just sits here and I haven't touched it in probably four or five months. But every once in a while, I get this urge to like go write a poem on the typewriter. And it's it's a fun little thing. And I have these you know, very just like goofy things that I've written over the years that I can, you know, come back to in, in, in the future and stuff. But it is, it is, I think a lot of this is fostering the ability to get out of your own head, um, speaking the words instead of thinking the words, typing the words or writing the words instead of just thinking the things, um, going to work out gets you out of your head, right? Because you have to focus on the task at hand. A lot of this self-care stuff, I think is about 
getting out of that freeze thing that we're in, because a lot of people are in fight, flight, or freeze so much of their day, myself included. Like I, yesterday I was, I was uh, having procrastination. I was, it was like 3 PM. I'm like, how come I can't bring myself to do this next task? What's going on? And I stopped for a moment and took a breath and went, oh, this is a freeze response. Like I'm in the middle of a freeze response. And I didn't really know what to do with that, but I was like, okay, at least I know why I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to beat myself up. This is just what's happening. So what I ended up doing was going for a walk and it eventually lifted. Um, but I do think that a lot of these things, it's like, we could just sit on a couch with our brain and not do anything for 10 hours because it's just so overwhelming to, to think our way out of these things. And a lot of what you're talking about is you got to do your, you got to act your way out of these things. Um, and so as we, as we dig into all these different self-care practices, the reason that we're going on these tangents into procrastination and into, um, you know, goals or strategies instead of goals and throwing out the vision board. A lot of this is because so much of what is being, let's say promoted is, is almost creating more internalization. It's like create a brand for yourself, pitch yourself, put all this pressure on yourself, become this thing. Everyone could become whatever they want. So if you're not right. setting these huge goals that paralyze you, you're not doing enough. And you know, setting small goals that don't paralyze you and don't make you scared. And um, I was listening to a podcast with this one comedian and he was like, I remember how small my goals were at the beginning. My, I was passing out flyers on the street, watching people throw them directly into the trash. And all I wanted to do was go from the street to the front door, checking in tickets. That was my entire goal at the time was to just not be in the 20 degree weather and to be inside ripping tickets instead of handing out flyers. And now they do huge stadiums and whatever. And it's just so funny how like we look at a celebrity and we go, well, they do everything. Look how Kevin Hart can do like 50 different businesses. Yeah. Well, at one point he just did stand up or just did whatever he was doing. Right. And so very often narrowing the focus ends up getting us to where we want to be versus, uh, you know, if I'm going to do self-care, I have to do it 100% right, which means I need to work out, eat well, wake up at a certain time get my work done by a certain time, take care of all these things, see all my friends, write letters to my, to people, uh, you know, write poetry at night. And like, all of a sudden you've got a list of 700 different things that you're never going to accomplish. And you turn self-care into a, I don't know, a task. It's, I can't it's, even like, it's, it's another task that really disrupts our ability to achieve the things that we want to. So it, it comes full circle, right, in this moment, because you talked about this in, in the Kevin uh, reference, but that's precisely it. He started somewhere, and the important piece is that he started. And then what happens is it blossoms into all different types of things that we may not see coming, but it's so rewarding because we started. And, and that's the ultimate lesson that you can take away from this is that if it's one, I'm, as I get older, I am becoming more and more certain, not in the outcome of things, but rather in the piece of checking in about where I would like to go and starting that process and the outcome will work itself out. 
And that, man, takes a lot. I mean, I've been practicing for 10, 15 years to be able to do that. And so I, I would say folks have to give themselves a bit of grace and remember this is a marathon, you know. And like you said, if you pile a bunch of things on that has the same effect of when you did not achieve the things that you wanted. This is so important. And I think we've hit on so many different things. Just to kind of recap some of our takeaways here, uh, focus on sustainability when it comes to your self-care, develop your grit rather than relying on motivation, set strategies instead of goals. Uh, we talked about the importance of acceptance and knowing that you don't know what's coming. Perseverance is more valuable than motivation and throw out the vision boards and replace it with action boards, maybe. <laughs> um, focus on these action items that are time-sensitive, achievable, non-feeling focused. And I wish we could have gone deeper into the non-feeling focused piece. Uh, integrate procrastination into your process as a strategy. Embrace the chaos and work with your personality. Leverage DBT radical acceptance. Creative writing for self-care. And use self-talk for your self-care. And as we get to the end here, Dr. Wright, um, I was curious if you have a poem laying around, would you like well, to I, go ahead? You, you know what, what happened, what dawned on me is that um, I'm going to pull one up for you. So I'm going to talk about one that is of particular importance. Um, it's called Halcyon Days. It's the name of my, my practice is Halcyon Clinical. And um, I wrote this when I was about 17 years old. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> and so it started off as, as this. It says, chronicles of major profits could have never told me. Standard of living is based upon chips. Modern day and time is global. Leaving my mind withholding. Thinking about halcyon days. Clouds hold back the rays. It's like a dark and evil session. Leaving confessions from the evil thoughts of men, this world is sometimes upsetting. As I reflect on perfecting my thoughts, I can't change the world, but I can surely make a difference. To reference, look this word up and you will see what I'm talking about. Halcyon days giving your mind a utopian view, but trust me, it's all true. Damn. <laughs> Love it. That is so amazing. And it's, it's very, uh, very understanding of who you are going to become. That's amazing. I have, this is the amazing part about this stuff, Martin. I go, by the way, I'm 44 years old this year. Right. And so this is 22. So I'm doing the numbers. That's 27 years ago. And it's such a good journal of where I was. And lo and behold, uh, the funny story about that poem is that word is it was one of my, I was in AP English class and Miss James was my teacher and she would give us words to uh, remember and spell. And for some reason it stuck out to me then. And she was a tough teacher, by the way. <laughs> and, but the word stuck out. I was writing poetry. I wrote that poem, kept the, the actual paper of it, and it became what I call my business. And as a you know background in doing therapy, it made so much sense. It's a fascinating thing. It's probably 
Um, they're probably more deeper. We can we could spend another hour on that one. But just uh, <laughs> I love that. And for anyone who's listening. Uh, who doesn't know what halcyon means? Uh, it denotes a period of time in the past that was idyllic, happy, and peaceful. So gotta love it. Dr. Wright, <laughs> thank you so much for being with us today. If people want to follow along with your work and your journey, where should they go to learn more? Uh, it's mostly on Twitter. It's Dr. O, uh, I think, O. Wright, PhD. We'll have o. that all in the notes PhD. as well. And and then my link tree, I think you'll have that in the notes. We will. We it's will. It's been a pleasure chatting with you, man. This was fun. I enjoyed it. Same. Thank you so much for being here. And I wish you all the best. All right, Martin. We'll be in touch. Thanks for joining us for today's episode. If you found this conversation to be helpful, please like and subscribe wherever you are listening. We also appreciate it if you take the time to leave us a review on iTunes. It really does help us spread the word and get these ideas out to more job seekers looking to build their careers and improve their lives just like you. If you'd like to learn more about career therapy and see our different coaching options, you can head over to careertherapy.com to learn more. Thank you again for stopping by. We wish you all the best in the future of your career. Have a good one.